0: Buddy, you're listening to the Mystery Mat Spotlight podcast. This evening, we are kicking off season eight, as we do each season with one of our true crimes. I'm joined this evening by Sarah and Colleen and Detective Tuesday.
1: <laughs> How appropriate.
0: You, you need Detective Tuesday, right? Yes.
1: Uh, Sniff out the criminals. For
0: those of you at home who may have missed that, uh, Tuesday is a poodle. Anyways, uh, I'll throw it over to you because I'm the backseat guy on these ones. Well,
1: I'm going to need both of you guys to be sharp because this one's a tough one and it's going to be a long one. Probably
0: a two-parter.
1: Yes, but two long two-parters. I'm sorry, guys. But it'll be worth it. it After seven and a half months of research and writing, uh, a hand that looks like a surgical glove with air blown into it. a fucked up shoulder and a bad back after doing all of this. Please listen.
0: should be okay for us. Up
2: <sighs> up there.
1: Yep. All right. Mm-hmm. So this case has so many twists and turns, uh, <clears throat> corruption and accusations akin to the Salem witch trials. We're going to be talking about the West Memphis Three.
0: That's more than two.
1: Yes. So West Memphis is a very religious town outside of, well, inside of Arkansas, just literally west of Memphis, Tennessee. Um, it's full of god fearing people, so when the suspects looked different, acted different than themselves, it's no surprise they were singled out. The town of West Memphis, Arkansas at one time was a manufacturing and distribution hub of the area, just west of the Mississippi River and access to the railroads as well as being a busy area for truckers. The town boomed as a small touristry area. That changed around 1956 when Congress approved the Federal Aid Highway Act, which would approve the construction of 41,000 miles of roads which would connect 42 cities bypassing west memphis and smaller towns just like it and the town would suffer because of it and then in the early 90s the unemployment rate was approximately 8.4 percent 1,378 families out of 7,485 were living below the poverty line in 1987 and 1988 natural disasters plagued the cities with tornadoes causing floods, as well as a big blizzard, which also added to the floods, um, resulting in six deaths from, a tornado, from the tornado and causing $3.5 million worth of damage, and the town struggled to recover, and I don't actually think they did. So these things never really phased kids. Like, if you remember, when anything like that ever happened in our cities or towns, we were kids. We didn't care. They, We didn't worry about the financial backlash of it, right? We just went on. So, three in 1993, three 8-year-old boys would leave school and never return. Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers were all grade 2 students at Weaver Elementary School. Weaver had 335 students ranging from kindergarten to grade 12, and 44 were second graders. Michael Moore was born on July 27, 1984 to Todd and Dana Moore and was the younger brother to Sister Dawn. The family lived at 1398 East Barton in a nice little house. Michael was a very proud Cub Scout and would proudly wear his Cub Scout uniform as much as he could. In fact, he actually loved all uniforms, and he once showed up to school wearing his dad's coat and hat from his Navy u- uniform. So it's no surprise that Michael wanted to be a police officer when he grew up. He was a natural leader. He was very funny, and it made it, it made it his mission to make people laugh, and he just wanted everyone to be happy. So when he wasn't busy making people laugh, he was out playing with friends, riding on his bike, or playing t-ball, and he also loved math. His closest friend was Stevie Branch, and Stevie Branch was born on November 26, 1984, to Stephen and Pam Branch. In 1985, Stephen and Pam would divorce, and she would go on to marry Terry Hobbs in 1986. Little sister Amanda entered the family in 1989. The Hobbs family lived at 1601 Macaulay Street, and Terry was working as a delivery driver for the Memphis Ice Cream Company, and Pam worked afternoons at the Catfish Island restaurant. Stevie was very close with his mother and had a little crush on the sister of his best friend Michael. Don, who was 10 at the time. Kind of cute, actually, when you think about it. It is cute. Anyway, Stevie was blonde with bright blue eyes and freckles, dusted his nose and cheeks lightly. He was mature for his age and was on the honor roll at school. And just like Michael, Stevie was also a Cub Scout, too, and he loved working on projects for his Cub Scouts. Stevie was a little daredevil and loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and would practice their moves doing front and back flips. He enjoyed riding his bike and playing with his friends, his maternal grandfather, Jackie Hicks, gave Stevie a pocket knife, which he always, always kept on him. Christopher Byers was friends with Michael and Stevie, but always more on the outside looking in. He was born on June 24, 1984, to Melissa and Ricky Murray, who divorced in 1988. And in 1989, Melissa married John Mark Byers, who adopted Christopher. They lived across the street from the Moors at 1400 East Barton, the 13-year-old stepbrother of Chris's, Ryan. His nickname was Worm, because he squirmed around a lot. This is where Nancy have came in handy in this part. Um, <laughs> he was diagnosed with ADHD and seeing a psychiatrist. He was being treated with Ritalin for ADHD, extreme pulsivity, destructiveness, opposition, defiance, hyperactivity, extremely low frustration, tolerance, and refusal to follow commands. He could be violent and had, uh, had gotten into a few fights at schools and had set a few small fires. John Mark Byers was an unemployed jeweler who had a few run-ins with the law for fraud and drug dealing. But instead of ever being charged, he instead worked as a confidential informant for the West Memphis Police. And Melissa Byers had a prior history of heroin use before marrying Byers. Troubles aside, Christopher loved motors and mechanical parts, and he was super imaginative, creative, and in- inquisitive. He was also a Cub Scout, and he loved swimming. So now we're going to hit on the timeline. So on May 5th, 1993, school let out at 2.55 p.m. Michael and Christopher walked home by themselves. It is unknown if they were together. Pam, with, along with four-year-old Amanda, walked to the school to walk Stevie home. Michael immediately changed into his Cub Scout uniform before his mother arrives home ten minutes later. And Pam starts to make dinner and asks Stevie if he has any homework, and he tells her, nope, he did it at school, and then proudly hangs it up on the fridge. When Chris gets home, he discovers that no one is home and he can't even get inside, so he sits and waits for a little bit. But anybody knows about a kid with ADHD, ADHD, they're not going to sit for long. Right. So anyway, so Michael rides his bike over to Stevie's and the two boys bug Pam to go out and ride their bikes together. But she first tells them no because dinner will be ready and she has to go to work at five. Eventually, Pam gives in and tells Stevie to be home at four thirty and the two boys leave the house at around three twenty. At three ten, John Mark Byers arrives home, but Chris is not there. He's over at Stevie's looking for Michael and Stevie. He stays to watch the Muppet Babies with Amanda and leaves around 4 p.m. Mark Byers takes Ryan to the courthouse at, at 3.50 because Ryan was a witness to a hit and run. At 4.15 to 4.30, Terry Hobbs arrives home from work and soon after, Pam needs to leave for work but Stevie was not home. They leave and they look for Stevie driving by the Moore's house but there is no sign of the boys. At 5.20, Melissa and Mark Byers arrive home but he needs to leave again to pick up Ryan. On his way, he sees Chris lying on his belly on a skateboard in the middle of the street. He brings Chris home and gives him a few licks of the belt and tells him to clean the carport before leaving again. So, John Mark Byers is very open about the discipline that he dolled out. Um, He wasn't considered abusive in any way. This was the same discipline that many of us in our generation often dealt with. Sure did. And the reason for the discipline in this action is because... Christopher didn't understand that he could have gotten seriously hurt laying on a skateboard in the middle of the road. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, nobody's going to see a little boy on the skateboard in the middle of the road. Yeah. So, at around 5.15 to 5.20, Terry Hobbs and daughter Amanda arrive at Friends David Jacoby's house where they play guitar, even though he's supposed to be out looking for Stevie. He eventually leaves around 6 and may have left Amanda with the, with the Jacoby's, although they can't remember for 100% sure they did. At 6pm, Mark and Ryan arrive back, and Melissa tells Ryan to go and get Chris out of his room. Ryan goes, but Chris isn't there. At around the same time, Dana Moore sees the three boys on North 14th Street and sends Don out to get Michael for dinner, but Don couldn't find any of them. The buyers go out looking for Chris for almost an hour. They see a police officer in a parking lot and ask him what they should do, and the officer tells him to go home and call the police to officially report it. Now, why wouldn't he just take the report?
0: Yeah, like, he's got a patent paper, he's, too. He's sitting
1: there, apparently, in a dollar store parking lot doing nothing.
0: Oh, jeez.
2: Now, he could have been maybe close
1: to off-duty. The other thing is, is
2: that for something as serious as child missing, giving it to him is one thing, like, he's got to dispatch it in, mm-hmm. talk to people, but if they call in right to the station, they might get the correct people to talk to. I don't know.
1: True, but, I mean, he could have at least made the effort. Yeah. You I would, would think, think right? I couldn't
2: he say, you know what? I will call it in, warn them you'll be calling. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So... Anyways, at 8 p.m., Mark Byers calls the police from their home. At 8.10, Officer Regina Meeks arrives at the Byers' home, where Melissa says she saw Chris between 5.30 and 5.45. Dana Moore comes over to report Michael missing and tells Officer Meeks she saw the three boys all together around 6. Officer Meeks leaves around 8.29 to look for the boys. 11 minutes later, Officer Meeks responds to another call. At approximately 8.42 p.m., she goes to the Bojangles restaurant and goes through the drive through to talk to the manager, Marty King. King tells Officer, I don't, I don't, I don't she doesn't even go into the restaurant. She I can't. She
2: yeah. just
1: goes through the drive-thru. Talk about your lazy fucking assholes. Oh, yeah. Right? So King tells Officer Meeks that an African-American man with a cast on one arm came in covered in mud and blood and locked himself in the ladies' washroom. King described the man's behavior as being disoriented and nonverbal. He had left by the time the officer arrived and King told Officer Meeks there was blood all over the washroom and had left, the, left a pair of women's sunglasses behind. Officer Meeks still does not go in. Shortly after, she responds to a call about mischievous teens. In nine eighteen, Terry Hobbs and daughter Amanda arrive to pick up Pam at the Catfish Island restaurant and does not tell Pam he never found Stevie. Instead, he walks right past her and goes to the payphone and calls the police to report Stevie missing. At 9.24, Officer Meeks responds to a call from Dana and Todd Moore. I guess they had to officially report it. Um, As soon as Pam arrives home, she changes her clothes and goes out to search for her son. At this point, all six parents and police are checking in different locations, knocking doors, going through Robin Hood Hills with only the light of the full moon. So Robin Hood Hills is four acres of wood and swampy area. Um, There's two entrances to it. Um... One's on at the end of the street by the Mayfair apartments, and the other one is by um what is it? The blue the Blue Beacon Truck Wash, I think it's called. Yes, the
2: blue beacon. I have it
1: written down. Oh, I do have it written down. So in the area there's a man-made ditch that they call a bayou to help redirect the water away from the town. This was put in after those major floods situations in the 80s. Um, so it redirects all the water from the town, and I think it goes into the Mississippi. I'm not really sure. Um there's also a pipe going from the truck wash side to the other side with what resembles like a one and a half to two inch support beams that you would find in your basement. And on top of it, like the pipe was big enough that about a half a foot off the pipe, top of the round pipe would be the beam. And then another half of a foot of the pipe would be below it. So it was very narrow. Anyways, that's the best way I can describe it. I will post pictures on the WordPress, <laughs> just so everybody knows. Um, so anyways, they are searching these woods, and the mosquitoes are out in the millions, just swarms and swarms of them. But around 2 a.m., they had to call off the search until the next day. So on May 6th at 5.30, the search resumes with Mark Byers, Terry Hobbs, Jackie Hicks Sr., and Todd Moore joining up with the police, and Inspector Gary Gitchell was leading the search. They searched all through the woods until around noon when they decide the boys were not there and begin to leave and search other areas around town. But just after 12.30, Assistant Juvenile Probation Officer Steve Jones, who joined the search, spotted a laceless black tennis shoe floating in the bayou and calls it in with the radio. Detective Brian Ridge and Sergeant Mike Allen jump in the water with their suits still on and begin feeling around the murky water. At around 1.45, Sergeant Allen's foot hits something and all of a sudden a small body floats to the surface. The body is nude and hog-tied, right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to left ankle. They found Michael Moore. Sergeant Allen continues on his hands and knees and feet, dislodges some sticks, pinning some clothes down to the um, bed of the creek. Then just a few feet away, he discovers the nude body of Stephen Branch. He was also tied the same way as Michael, and Christopher Byers was found 12 feet away from that, naked, hog badly beaten, and his genitals had been mutilated. At 2.15, the area is taped off and officers block the two entrances to Robin Hood Hills and only police were allowed in. The bodies were then placed on the riverbanks. And it's up until this point that the police who were involved in the searches for the three boys, not you, Regina Meeks, not you, were doing everything right because she was doing everything wrong. Yeah. Um, they should never have removed the bodies from the water until the scene was documented and the medical examiner or coroner released the bodies. Yeah. Um, The moment the bodies were moved and placed on the dry bank, the insect activity increased immediately, and this can affect the evidence that might be on the bodies, which is also the body itself, and also can affect the time of death as well. So, as in that grizzly scene, you have to kind of put off your parenting hat and put on your cop hat. But um, evidence collected at the scene on May 6th was the shoelaces used to tie each boy was not their own michael wasn't tied with his own shoelaces etc um the large sticks used to pin the bodies and the clothing to the muddy bottom the clothes were collected but the sticks were not they were found in approximately two and a half feet of murky muddy water at around 60 degrees fahrenheit or 15.5 degrees celsius due to the way they were tied they could not check for rigor but lividity was present Fifty feet away from where the bodies were found, police found Michael's and Stevie's bicycles in the water. The bikes were collected and placed in an animal control van. They were not wrapped up to preserve potential evidence or to prevent contamination. All the boys' clothing was recovered, with the exception of two pairs of underpants and some socks. All three pairs of pants were done up and/or buckled and inside out. Only one shoe had laces in it, and there was no signs of blood. <coughs> At 3.30 p.m., the Crindon County coroner arrives with Ed Poe from the funeral home, and the boys are pronounced deceased at 4 p.m. Their body sat on the bank for two hours, with temperatures at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Decompos- decomposition began quickly. Great. News cameras have gathered outside Robin Hood Hills and captured the moment when Inspector Gitchell breaks the terrible news to the parents, and Pam Hop faints. Mark Byer gives interviews, giving out some details which he never should have done. Steve Jones and Chief Juvenile Probation Officer Jerry Driver are quick to comment to police that this triple murder reads like a satanic sacrifice and they knew just who might be behind it. That's the problem. Yeah. As soon as you put an idea in somebody's head, they're going to stick with it. Yeah. They're going to stick with it no matter what.
2: The the first idea put in, just like how whoever gets their story out first is believed, the first idea put in... That's the one that they will keep going on to the exclusion of others.
1: And in, and, and in their defense, right? You don't want to say, Oh, the murder of three year old boys was done by somebody for no reason. Mm-hmm. You, you need a reason to make, make it make sense to you. And if satanic sacrifice for some fucked up reason makes sense to you to make you under like have some kind of understanding why this could happen. I don't, I don't begat them that, but to, to be a, an investigator to put to Allison have that tunnel vision into it is just
2: it's wrong so the idea the thing is these these officers they found they saw the bodies they saw the scene they saw the issues on the bodies and in their mind I bet they're thinking the what type of human could do this to a child and their mind goes only the most despicable evil human to somebody to do this has to be evil has to be that we can see that they're evil because that's how we work we need to be able to see the evil and believe there is evil so that's what my thought is is they just thought no way a normal no no normal god-fearing person in this town could do this it has to be somebody who is in league with the devil in order
1: to do something this horrible Well, i definitely agree that it's somebody who's evil oh yeah i mean you have <clears throat> to mur- to murder a child you have to have some evilness in you
2: oh god yes
1: but anyways i digress So on May 7th, 1993, the Memphis Commercial Appeal used their police scanners to find out the details and printed what they heard in the newspaper without fact checking to see if the information was right or wrong. And of course, that can skew public opinion. And of course, rumors fly. They're not putting out the right information. They're just putting out everything. This conversation between cops that they hear on scanners is not even necessarily factual.
2: Now the commercial appeal that's the that's local a newspaper. newspaper okay yeah, a local newspaper I think, newspaper, in, I think yeah. in
1: Memphis Tennessee because it said Memphis okay. commercial appeal All right Okay so the West Memphis police refused outside help from the more experienced Arkansas state police There were some major issues between the two the state police were investigating the West Memphis police department in the, and the Crindon County Sheriff's office I'm just going to sum this up with a quote from the book Devils Not by Mara Leverett um Quote, during the 10 weeks immediately preceding the triple murder in May, 14 employees of the County Drug Task Force, including four detectives from the West Memphis Police Department, were questioned by state police. Several officers, including three from West Memphis PD, admitted to having taken guns from the evidence locker. One deputy told investigators that it had become common practice for members of the Drug Task Force to help themselves to guns that were reported to the courts as having been destroyed, unquote. Uh. So Matt's probably wondering, why the hell is this relevant? He's like, whatever. So it is, because Lieutenant James Sudbury was one of the narcotic officers who who was under investigation with Arkansas State Police. He was now helping with the triple murder of the three boys. Sudbury admitted to taking at least four weapons that had been taken into evidence. The district attorney, remember this name, Brent Davis, decided not to charge Sudbury or the other officers involved. Mark Byers was also connected to the drug task force. And in tight with the West Memphis PD as an informant. And on May 7th, Lieutenant James Sudbury and Assistant Juvenile Probation Officer Steve Jones, which I have no idea why he has anything to do with this investigation, yeah. go over to the Broadway trailer park to talk to 18 year old Damien Eccles about the murders. Eccles was hated by both Steve Jones and his boss, Chief Juvenile Probation Officer Jerry Driver, who's a dick. Anyways, they spoke <laughs> to Damien and took Polaroids of him and his tattoos. So let's talk about. Jerry Driver and Steve Jones for a oh bit. Boy. So Driver firmly believed there was a satanic cult activity in the area and he was hell-bent on finding it. He had previously confiscated some of Damien Eccles' books, drawings, and writings before the murders even happened. Driver was convinced that Damien was a Satanist and must have been involved and voiced it at the scene alerting police right away. Even before Michael, Stevie, and Chris were both found, Driver and Steve Jones were convinced that this was satanic cult activity was behind it. Before Driver became chief juvenile probation officer, he was a commercial airline pilot before retiring, and then he opened up a cleaning bit, bu- like a cleaner's business, which failed. He was in his 50s and had an axe to grind against Damien Eccles. Quote: On the day after the bodies of the three boys were found, I had a conversation with Steve Jones, a juvenile officer for Clinton County, Arkansas. In our conversations, I found that Steve and I shared the same opinions that the murders appeared to have overtones of a cult sacrifice. During our conversation, Steve mentioned that of all the people known by him to be involved in cult-type activities, one person stood out in his mind, In his opinion was capable of being involved in this type of crime. That person was Damien Eccles, unquote. That was Lieutenant James Sudbury. Jerry Driver made a list of name, nine people he believed were involved in a devil-worshipping cult. Damien's name was at the top of the list, as well as Jason Baldwin, Dam- who was Damien's best friend, Dominique Teer, who was Damien's pregnant girlfriend, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., who really didn't have much to do with either. The list prompted narcotics officer Shane Griffin to grab Detective Bill Durham and go over to talk to Jason Baldwin and where he found Damien and Domini there as well. But we'll get to that. I'm trying to go in as much order as I can here. So the police investigation continues and they did they did very briefly entertain other persons of interest, like possibly an army vet was involved based on the restraints. And they looked at people who had a history of animal cruelty. On the afternoon of of May 6th, Bojangles restaurant manager Marty Kings called the police again after hearing about the boys. Detective Brian Ridge drove over right from the crime scene without changing clothes or shoes and collects the sunglasses, and he takes blood samples for testing. That was left behind. Uh, a week and a half later, 19-year-old Chris Morgan, who drove an ice cream truck and was familiar with Stevie Branch's residence, he moved very suddenly to California. On May 17th, police in California bring Chris Morgan in for questioning he denies any involvement. But Morgan says he jumped off a cliff into the Mississippi River and went to a nightclub. He has a history of substance abuse and suddenly tells law enforcement that he may have blacked out and killed the three boys. But again says he had nothing to do with it. Morgan gives blood and urine samples. Police have no solid suspects and they keep returning to the idea that this crime was satanic cult-related. It was a full moon that night. So I must have meant it was a cult. Did they really ever actually look anywhere. I think they just believed this was a satanic ritual sacrifice right from the beginning, and the only reason they looked for other persons of interest because it prevents the defense from accusing them of tunnel vision. Uh, police turned to Dr. Dale Griffiths, a former police officer with 26 years of experience and an, and I quote, occult expert, to find out if whether or not this crime had satanic overtones. The police showed up multiple times to Damien's house and once to Jason Baldwin's. Jason's mother, Gail Grinnell, shows up and immediately stops the questioning and tells Jason, Damien, and Domini not to talk to the police. Damien was already in their crosshairs. Eccles tells Brian, Brian Ridge about the pantogram and that he's part of White Wicca. In Damien's mind, he thought that Detective Ridge was asking these questions because he needed help. Eccles also tells Ridge that he was nowhere near Robin Hood Hills and that his mother picked him and Dominique up and dropped Domini off at home, and then he was home on and on the phone. And Detective Rich asked Damien who he thought did the murders, Damien replied, that was probably somebody looking for a thrill. Then he, the, he then asked if his religious beliefs could make sense of this horrific crime. Damien says the number three is important, so is blood, and water is, is like a demon-like force. Damien then adds that all humans have a demon entity inside of them. Damien Knuckles was goaded into making these comments, which helped to reinforce the West Memphis police department's theory, and mixed that with Damien's smart-ass attitude and the way he looked, dressed all in black, black-dyed hair, kept longer on one side, and shaved on the other, he made himself even more of a suspect. Problem is, they have no evidence connecting Eccles to the murder. In the South, they have a very strong fundamentalist beliefs, and were not really open to anything not preached from the Bible. Anything outside of their belief system was often, not always, but always, or often enough viewed as devil's work. They heavily believed that the devil was trying to lead people to sin, and believed that heavy metal music, wearing black clothes, and playing Dungeons and Dragons and Ouija boards were the gateway to hell and devil worshipping. Wow, we would have all been fucked, wouldn't we? Oh, dear
2: <laughs> Lord, yes. Uh, I mean, it's just insane. It is. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. This it whole is. thing is crazy.
1: Yeah. Oh, the Dungeons and Dragons book? Yes, you do. Um. Yeah, so during the late 1970s, especially in the early 80s, but all the way into the early 90s, satanic panic was prevalent in the United States, especially during in the South. And during this time, the public was given the impression because of the media. Shows like Geraldo Rivera, I don't know if you guys remember, he had like that big thing about satanic cults. Oh, yeah, Geraldo did a whole yeah, bunch on huge, it. Yeah, huge, huge, huge amount. Which he wasn't even anywhere close to being correct. No. Um... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, where did I say? Oh, hold. in the early 1990s, FBI profilers John Douglas, Robert Ressler, and Dr. Ann Burgess were researching and writing the first edition of the Crime Classification Manual. But they could not find any reliable or factual data supporting satanic-based murders or related crimes. And in 2006, when the second edition came out, there was still no change in that data. "Quote the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crimes definition of true occult slash satanic murder." is murder committed by two or more individuals who rationally plan the crime and whose primary motivation is to fulfill a prescribed satanic ritual calling for the murder. Committee members raise the question of whether occult-slash-satanic murders, as defined above, truly exist, aside from the media hype surrounding this subject. The popularity of occultism-slash-satanism with the mass media has only served to cloud the issue and sometimes interfere with the objective investigation of a crime. The religious <clears throat> excuse me the religious beliefs of a law enforcement officer may further complicate the process of objectivity investigating an alleged satanic murder in regards to the occurrence of satanic murder. the NCAVC has attempted to solicit cases from several sources who have made such claims. The analysis of crime scene photos from the few cases that ncaVC did receive failed to support the definition of occult slash satanic murder or the defining characteristics of crime scene indicators and forensics derived from satanic crime conference material, end quote. And that was from directly from the Crime Classification Manual. Okay. Whew, I need a breath here, man. <laughs> so, what? Colleen's thinking.
2: No, um... No, I just don't know if something I'm thinking is something you're going to touch on later. That's where I'm... I'm, Oh. Yeah, that's where I'm not quite certain. Yeah, because you don't want to jump ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So I'll just have to remember to say it later if you don't get to it. All right.
1: So... (laughs) Sorry. So Dawn Moore told Detective Ridge that she saw three teenage boys coming out of the woods, two African-American males and one white male. I don't think this was ever really vetted, to be honest with you, because that was basically one of the one-off things that she saw. Yeah. They never really mentioned it again, but I felt like it was important to mention.
2: Yeah. Everybody, everybody who saw something, no matter what. No matter how small it is in
1: any crime, if you think you've seen something, you say something. Yeah. Let the police figure it out. Providing they're capable. Um, (laughs) In the early days of the investigation, nine officers were sent out into the community with questionnaires with 11 questions on it, and they knocked on about 528 doors. 180 of those were in the Mayfair apartment complex. And remember, that's right backs right on to Robin Hood Hills. Um, 11 were marked as vacant. 124 were marked as not answering. But zero surveys were filled out for 8 of the 14 streets and only 60 were actually completed. Police looked into as many individuals who had passed through the Blue Beacon truck wash on May 5th and 6th of May. But so many trucks passed through that if the person responsible was a trucker, they were long gone. Uh, Police checked people with vans, which was based on some sketchy eyewitness accounts. And as we know, eyewitnesses aren't always the most reliable. Even though I just said, if you see something, say something. But it's true. Anyways, on May 12th, they tested the area where the bodies were found for blood using luminol. They discovered very faint reactions to random areas around the site. An 11-foot high bluff, which overlooked the stream on either side of a tree. Another area where used plastic sheeting was... In the west bank of the stream, bed, to the right of some trees, had all indications that small amounts of blood was present. However, between May 6 and the day of the luminol test, it had rained, and the search for blood evidence was found where law enforcement had laid the bodies after being pulled from the water. The West Memphis police were so focused on the Satan- Satanic cult angle that the case number was changed from either 655 or 656 to 666.
2: Oh, dear. Of course, they deny this Uh uh-huh yeah
1: yeah they deny this um they had tunnel vision based on a theory despite not having sufficient evidence to back up their theory they made the small amount of evidence they did have fit their theory instead of allowing that evidence to tell them what had actually happened and by whom they had nothing significant significant that pointed to a ritualistic murder there was no candles or wax residue no symbols presents nothing Steve Jones had no law enforcement training and Lieutenant Sudbury was in narcotics. And when they first spoke to Damien Eccles at his home, Sudbury said they had permission from his mother and stepfather to talk to Damien, which was not true. And in Sudbury's report, they had the he had the wrong names written down. Sudbury included in his report that the interview took place in Damien's bedroom and that Damien was wearing dark clothes and had a pentagram tattooed on his chest. But the questions he asked Damien was not present in the report. Steve Jones made note that two pairs of his boots and tennis shoes had mud caked on the bottoms. Damien later said that Jones was the one who asked most of the questions that really had nothing to do with the murders. Questions like who is his favorite author, favorite book of the Bible, if he's ever reading any if he's ever read anything by Anton Levey, and if he knew anything about devil worshiping and if there was any plans to sacrifice children. Oh.
2: <laughs> well yeah th- those aren't leading are no they? they're not
1: leading at all and they're not they're also very stupid questions
2: oh god yeah
1: they also took pull rides of him and then they would show damien's photo all over town while in court both james and sudbury denied taking the photo the photo was damaging because once that photo was put out there people around town came forward about seeing cult members their damages this damages their case by putting a person of interest in the public eye not only do they have no evidence connecting Eccles, but now these eyewitnesses can make shit up because now they believe that this person in the photo must be guilty. So Damien is interviewed three times, on May 7th by Jones and Sudbury, May 8th in front of Jason's trailer with Jason and Dominey, which is when Gail Grin- Grinnell put a stop to it, and by, de- by Detective Ridge at the police station on May 10th. On May 9th, Darlene Hollingsworth, who was also Dominey's aunt, told police that she had seen Damien and Dominey on May 5th leaving Robin Hood Hills wearing muddy clothes but Narlene knew about the rumors and had knowledge of the photo that was going around town. Notice that she didn't put Jason there. It was just...
2: Yeah, do, Damien da, uh, and Domini. yeah. I'm interested that she put Dominie there because you'd think as Domini's aunt, she'd try and keep <laughs> oh, Dominie no. out of She's it. A,
1: this woman's a piece of work.
2: Oh, boy.
1: When Damien was interviewed by Detective Ridge on May 10th, Damien told Ridge that he had went to Jason and, and Dominique to go to Jason's uncle and waited while Jason cut the grass. Then he and Dominique walked to a laundromat and used the poly, or the polyphone, the payphone to call for a ride. His mother picked them up and dropped Dominique off at her home before going home around 5, 5.30 where Pam, Joe, Michelle, and Damien ate dinner. And then he was on the phone until approximately 6.30 with Jennifer Bearden. Then the four of them left to go visit the Sanders' around 7pm and then left their place at 7.30. Nine people corroborated this. When they got home, Damien was on the phone all night with different people. He not only gave his alibi; Damien freely gave blood hair blood and hair samples and willingly took a polygraph. According to Detective Bill Durham, Damien showed deception on important questions, and this is my favorite was guilty via admission through absence of denial.
2: Okay, women, let me let me process guilty via guilty <laughs> via
1: admission through absence of den- denial, which means he didn't deny it. So he's guilty. He's automatically so because guilty. He, because
2: he didn't say, listen, I did not kill those three boys. That means he's guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Wowzers. Okay, I didn't kill anybody who died last night. Just let anybody knows that, okay? I didn't either. Yeah, yeah. No. Just, just in case I was busy writing out. this. Yeah, yeah. It's like, just, just
1: in case anybody decides. I'm on camera all night long. <laughs> Matt's staying freakishly quiet. <laughs> You're guilty. Just turn. Bring the gavel down. Yeah, I thought that was ridiculous. Yeah, that's insane. So, clearly, they didn't have any other suspects, so they just kept making things fit Damien. He didn't deny anything because he didn't feel, at that time, any reason to do so. He was giving them everything they asked of him. There was not there wasn't an, another problem. The autopsies were not even completed yet. So, how can you get answers from any person of interest, let alone Eccles, when they don't even know most of the answers? But on May 26th, Gitchell... sorry, Chief Inspector Gitchell sent a letter to the crime lab wanting answers to the time and cause of death, whether the boys had been sodomized, if there was anything under their nails, and who was killed first. Doesn't say if you got those answers, though. Mm -hmm. So, the West Memphis police also questioned LG Hollingworth after some family members claimed that LG came home late. On May 5th, covered in blood and what looked like are covered in mud and what looked like blood on him, and he was carrying something in a box that smelled bad. So LG is Narlene Hollingworth's nephew and Dominey's cousin. Apparently this guy's got a sketchy-ass background too. So LG tells police that he was at his Aunt Narlene's trailer, which was a few trailers down from Jason Baldwin's at Lakeshore Estates, and said that he had seen Damien at Dominey's around 5 p.m. LG told police that he and Damien Eccles were friends, but Damien said that LG was weird and could have committed these murders. And LG, at one point, did have an alibi, but that alibi later said that he lied. Okay. So, Narlene Hollingsworth said that she saw the three boys and gave a thorough description of what they were wearing, which did not match what the police found at the scene. She told police that she saw her niece, Dominique, and Damien Eccles around 9.30 p.m. walking down the service road near where the crime scene was, and that they were muddy, and her family said that Narlene was prone to exaggerate and was more interested in the reward money. On May 8th, Inspector Gitchell interviewed Mark Byers, but no other official or organized investigation was done on Melissa Byers, Dana Moore, Todd Moore, Pam Hobbs, or Terry Hobbs. So that's for that part. <clears throat> Anyways, I need to. Can you pause for a minute?
0: And we're back. I hope everybody took a little bit of a break there because this may be a long episode which may be preceded by another long episode. We're not sure how it's going to play out yet. But uh, Sarah, continue please.
1: All right. So on May 6th, just before the bodies of Michael, Stevie, and Chris were found, Vicki Hutchinson and her son Aaron went into the police to answer questions about a $200 credit charge at a local restaurant. West? Rest? Blah, that's that's that. There's something for your gag roll. <laughs> um, local rest stop where Vicky worked. Detective Don Bray sat down with Vicky Hutchinson and found out that her son Aaron was friends with the three missing boys and he pressed for further information. Detective Bray calls in that he had a lead but is told that the boys were no longer missing and breaks the news to the mother and son sitting in front of him. Vicki tells Detective Bray that the three boys had asked Aaron to go with them And play in Robin Hood Hills, but she had said no. Aaron tells Detective Bray that he had seen Michael talking to a black man with yellow teeth in a maroon car, who told Michael that his mother had sent him to pick Michael up from school, which Dana Moore had said that never happens because they just live a hop, skip, and a jump, and he would have just walked home. Yeah. A week later, Detective Bray interviews Vicky and Aaron again. News and details had already been leaked to the public. He asked her if she knew. Of any cult or devil worshiping going on in the area. And she told him that she did and offered to go undercover.
2: <laughs> For how right? much money? For how? I'm sorry, that's my first thought. For, For how all, much money? We don't
1: know. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. Mom so,
2: mentality.
1: Jeez. Right? On May 28th, Detective Bryn Ridge, Bryn, I'm sorry, his name is spelled B R Y N, but I know it's Brian Ridge, but I, I, I've always kept thinking Bryn. Bryn. Bryn Ridge, but it's actually Brian Ridge. Oh, so, really? Is that, yeah. Is that how you say it? It is, yeah. Oh,
2: jeez, I didn't know that. Okay.
1: So Brian Ridge speaks to Vicky, and she tells him that she is a neighbor of Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., and he would often help her around the home and even babysit for her, for her. Just two days before this, Aaron told police that he was there hiding and saw the three teenage boys, Damien, Jason, and Jesse, torture his friends. Whether or not this is all true is subjective because by the 26th of May, the entire town knew that Damien was a suspect of the police and that Jason had to be involved because he was always with Damien. Allegedly, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. told Vicky that his friend Damien liked to drink blood and stuff and was into witchcraft and scene. So Vicky goes undercover for the police and asks Jesse to introduce her to Damien. She purposely leaves books on the occult in plain view and reads up about it. Vicki then tells Detective Ridge that Damien and Jesse took her to a gathering of people interested in the occult called an esbat. Tells him that Damien drove them to an open field just outside of West Memphis in the dark. Says she really couldn't see faces, but they were all chanting and singing, but became uncomfortable when they started to remove their clothing and asked Damien to take her home, which he did. She describes that he was driving a Red Ford Escort. Problem was, Damien did not have a driver's license, had never known how to drive, and did not have access to a vehicle yeah but this whole thing you know they they just sweep that under the rug oh that's a small detail we don't need that um (laughs) that's so fucking.
2: Yeah, i I mean he's a devil worshiper he can make a a car
1: come here in thin air yeah conjure it up right yeah conjure a license and how to drive that thing and everything (laughs) anyway so vicky tells him that damien dropped a skull pendant with snakes through its eyes near the bathroom and erin had found it later on on her dresser Aaron had told her that he, Michael, and Chris would go to their clubhouse, which was located in Robin Hood Hills, where they would hide and spy on, spy on five men who pointed, painted themselves and sing about the devil. Vicky has her son tell this to Detective Rich, who tells the detective that they were dancing and doing nasty stuff. Detective, A- detective Rich asked Aaron, Quote, Around 20? Were they like teenagers, or do you think they just got out of school? About what age group? Aaron, quote, Like, they all look like my mom, unquote. (laughs) So, old. Old. (laughs) Detective Ridge is clearly trying to lead the young boy to the answer that he really wanted so that it would better fit into their theory and, of course, their suspect pool. Aaron continues to tell Detective Ridge that the men did sexual things to each other and says they would wipe each other. Ridge asks if they were having sex from the front or the back. Aaron says, front. Ridge asks if they were having sex with their mouths, to which Aaron says, yeah. Yeah. Like what eight year old boy knows this shit. Matt at eight did you know what this stuff was? No. No.
2: And especially in in the nineties before internet, Pornhub, all that. I'm sorry. The kids really didn't know that much. They then. didn't know that stuff. I mean no. if the kid knew that, I'd want to know what its home life was like. Right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, anyways, I did not know that stuff either. So he also claimed that they killed a cat beheading it and ate it, but not the head. Not sure if anyone really bought into any of this bullshit. I certainly did not. To me, it seems more like a woman who found out about reward money and coached her seven-year-old son to basically repeat things that was already publicly known and then added more to it to, to make it seem more reliable, which Ooh. to me did the opposite.
2: Because the reward money at that point, wasn't it up to like twenty, thirty thousand, 30000 Which for many of these people who were so dirt poor, it like, that would have been
1: like winning the Bleaton lottery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... And I guess now is a good time to introduce our three suspects. So we're going to start with Damien Eccles because there's the most on him and he's got the, he is the most primary suspect. So Damien Eccles was actually born Michael Wayne Hutchinson, no related to Vicki Hutchinson. His parents were Pam and Joe Hutchinson and he was a big brother to Michelle. He was born on December 11th, 1974 and Pam married Joe at the age of 15. He was then sent to live with his maternal grandmother, Frances Goza, right after his sister was born because his mom couldn't handle two kids at that time. Um, And he felt like he was unwanted. Well, no shit, Sherlock. I would have felt the same way. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, Damien was a very anxious child with an overactive imagination, which instilled a lot of fears in him, which he would fixate on. When he moved back to his parents, he found himself moving around a lot and had lived in six different states. Like a lot of families in West Memphis, the Hutchinsons were poor, which put strain on Pam and Joe's relationship, leading to the divorce. Pam met Jack Eccles at church. Jack was much older than Pam, but it didn't seem to matter. During this time, Damien had become infatuated with the Roman Catholic religion. So when Jack decided to adopt Damien and Michelle, Damien decided to change his first name from Michael to Damien. He Decided to change his name to Damien because he heard the story of Father Damien de V-E-U-S-T-E-R. Booster?
2: Yeah, Booster. I think so. A
1: Belgian Catholic priest who dedicated his time and life to lepers in Hawaii. Damien was very intrigued by religion, all of them, and read a lot about different religions. Damien's relationship with his stepfather was volatile. He hated Jack. Jack forced the family to attend church three times a week and was an extreme fundamentalist. Damien suffered from insomnia and would have bouts of either crying or laughing uncontrollably. He walked a lot and spent a lot of time a lot of the time at the library. He was also a music lover and an avid skateboarder. In 1986, Damien began junior high failing his first year and that's when he met Jason Baldwin. He recalled that he met Jason during study hall. He said Jason was a skinny kid with a black eye and a long blonde mullet. <laughs> Jason was drawing and doodling to pass the time and at Jason's feet was a black was a backpack filled with a large collection of cassette tapes. Like Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer, Iron Maiden, and so much more. There were no books to be seen. They became friends and will listen to Jason's tape collection by sharing the headphones, one in Jason's ear and one in Damien's, collected, connected to Jason's Walkman. They shared everything, clothes, music, and even homes, staying over at each other's houses. They were like brothers. Wow, we can identify with that, can we not?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. basically...
1: Our childhood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Damien's family moved in with his grandmother who lived at the same trailer park where Jason lived. <coughs> Damien met Jason Jason, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. by accident. He met Jesse through Jason when one day Damien showed up at Jason's only to be told he was at Jesse's. Both Damien and Jason rarely hung out with Jesse. Jason had only done so because he felt bad. Marion High School was filled with with teens from middle to upper class homes in similar neighborhoods. They'd be driving new cars and were all dolled up in designer clothes. So when Damien started there, he stood out, dressed in black with his hair dyed black as well and poor. He felt very alone. He was considered a freak. At 16, he met 15-year-old Deanna Holcomb, who came from a very religious family. She told Damien she was Wiccan, and that's when he began reading about it. The Holcombs welcomed Damien into their home until he, they discovered Deanna and Damien were having sex. After that, they snuck around together for a while, but Deanna would break up with him, and the breakup wouldn't last, and the two continued to see each other. And an unfortunate decision on their part to run away on the last day of school ended up putting Damien on Jerry Driver's radar. With neither of them being able to drive, they took off on foot, and once tired, they found solace in an abandoned trailer. The Holcomb's called the police, and the two were located, and Damien was arrested. And Jerry Driver begins his reign of terror and takes an unusual, and I do mean unusual, interest in Damien's life. More so than I think most probation officers would. Uh, He even started talking about Satanism with Eccles right away, even asking if Damien heard anything. Driver has Damien sit in jail, and while there, he learns that his stepsister Michelle accuses their stepfather, Jack Eccles, of sexual abuse. Then Driver sends Damien to a psychiatric center. He He is admitted on June 1st, 1992 and is prescribed antidepressants. During all this, his parents, Pam and Joe, reunite. Driver allegedly tells Damien that he and Deanna were trying to have a baby in order to sacrifice it. Damien is appalled and denies that allegation, says he's wicked, not a Satanist. (laughs) Good for you, Damien. Good for you, buddy. On June 25th, Damien is released to his parents' custody and the family moves to Oregon. Damien worked with his father, Joe, at a gas station, but Damien was struggling. He missed Jason, his friend Dominique, Indiana, joe felt his son was depressed enough that he might hurt himself so they admitted damien to st vincent's hospitals in portland oregon for two days and jerry driver learns about this and reports damien tried to kill his parents and eat them alive talk about a big jump
2: wow he really is reaching like mad he's
1: reaching and it's like makes you wonder which one of these guys actually has the problem
2: well and it's like what is wrong with his mind that his his mind immediately goes to
1: that like, I'm sorry, it's that's me- normally
2: not the thing that you're gonna no. think about.
1: Like, like, what the hell? It's like, no, this kid's depressed. It doesn't mean he's gonna kill his parents and eat them. And like eat them. Like, that's so like, stupid. Uh,
2: yeah. Dude, so, what you're reading.
1: Right. So Jerry's also in contact with the juvenile authorities in Portland, where Portland counselor Calvin Downey said that Driver com- communicated or commented saying that Damien and his friends were Satanists and that Damien was a witch as well as Driver's baby sacrificing theory. (laughs) And he also said that Pam and Joe were also involved in the satanic belief system. When Calvin Downey visited the family, he reported that Damien seemed pretty normal for a teenager. He worked, but had no real hobbies. Downey also reported that Damien wasn't very happy with Jerry Driver's assertions, and honestly, who would be? Yeah. He had just four months until he turned 18 and would remain under minimal supervision. Obviously, Calvin Downey sees that this kid is just a normal kid going through your normal teenage angst.
2: Yeah, he doesn't have the background prejudices that Driver has for some reason. No, that's
1: the, versus the Northwest versus the South. Yeah. So Jerry Driver wasn't done with Damien, not by a long shot. So he sent a letter to Calvin Downey claiming that Damien was in violation of his probation because he was trying to contact Deanna. What really pissed Driver off was when he found out Damien was moving back to West Memphis <laughs> and also saw this as a violation of his Eccles, Eccles probation. probation. Damien moves back. He moves in with Jack and immediately goes to see Jason and Dominie A few days later, Driver brings Damien to jail where he was kept for a few weeks before being sent to the hospital again. The doctors cannot figure out why Damien was even there. Jesus. Once released, Damien got his GED while living with Jack and once a week attended his appointment with Driver. Damien said both Driver and Steve Jones would often grill him about the occult. They have this strange obsession with the occult and Satanists. Not Damien. That's my, like, they're the one who keeps bringing it. They're the ones who are fixated on this idea. This is before the murders. So, obviously, they're the ones who have this obsession with it.
2: Now, who is Jack again? Sorry, Jack
1: Eccles is his stepfather. Jack
2: Eccles. Okay, sorry. Yeah. All right, sorry. Without the last name, I was lost on that oh, one. Sorry. Okay, yeah,
1: yeah. So, Driver had his hate on for Damien. He went around town warning people to stay away from Eccles because he was taking Eccles and anyone close to him down. Charles Jason Baldwin was born on April eleventh, nineteen seventy-seven, to Gail, Gail and Larry Baldwin, who were second cousins. The two divorced, and Larry lived in Central Arkansas. Gail would also have two more sons, Matthew and Terry, who were very close to Jason. Gail Grinnell suffered from schizophrenia and had once tried to commit suicide. Jason had found her, called 911, and helped save her life. Jason stepped up to help his mom out by taking care of his brothers, as well as around the trailer in Lakeshore Estate's trailer park. Neighbors described Jason as a sweet, gentle, and responsible young man, and he often babysat for them. He got good grades in school and was a talented artist. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, had pet snakes, and a cat. He left heavy metal music and had a collection of band t-shirts. Yes, I had a t-shirt that time, Matt, uh, instead of band tees. <laughs> <clears throat> His family attended church like the rest of the town of Memphis, and he was a God-fearing person. Like Damien, Jason was considered an outcast, and the two of them became best friends. At the age of 12, Jason was charged with breaking and entering criminal mischief when he, along with his 10-year-old brother Matt, and two other boys entered a building near the trailer park which they thought had been abandoned. Inside the building, there were old rusty cars, and what started out as an innocent game of hide-and-seek ended up with the boys throwing rocks at these cars. The cars, according to the police, were vintage. Jason was put on probation and reported to Steve Jones. Jason believed that both Jones and Driver hated him, and that was the reason they accused him, along with Damien, of starting a cult long before the murders. Jason and Damien had dreams and plans together, one of which was they were going to get out of West Memphis. Yeah. Run guys, run. You should get out now. But Damien had already gotten out and he'd come back. He'd come back because of Jason and Dominique. That's
2: right. He came back because I can understand that. I can totally understand that. Yep. It's the ties that it's that
1: cord that just keeps you connected to certain people. Yep. Yep. Those are the your people, you yep. know. So Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr. Okay, this gets a little bit complicated. I didn't go into the whole background of his childhood because well it branched out a lot. Yeah. Um, anyways, he was born July tenth, nineteen seventy five and lived with his father, Jesse Miss Kelly Senior. His parents divorced when he was very young, and his parent his father would remarry so many more times. <laughs> so many. Um, at the age of seven, Jesse couldn't recite his ABC's past the letter R or count past fifteen. He was given an intelligent test where he scored sixty seven, and the specialist said that Jesse was, and I quote, mildly mentally retarded unquote jesse's behavior was disrespectful stubborn sulky impulsive uncooperative indifferent and prone to rage he had a tendency to lash out at both teachers and other students when he was eight he was taken to a psychologist in memphis where they said jesse was non-psychotic not retarded but has low self-esteem lacks confidence and feels bad about himself and the world he was vulnerable unable to handle pressure and was overwhelmed very easily Jesse abused animals and pulled out his own hair and would bite himself when frustrated. Despite all of Jesse's issue, the counseling did not last and the family refused hospitalization. Jesse was devoted to Jesse Sr. despite being angry at his father. Since he couldn't take his anger out on his father, he would take it out on safer targets. At age 11, he made it to the third grade and at the age of 16, 16 was bumped up to the ninth grade. During that same year, he had lost he had his last psychological exam where they discovered he had deficits in general information, abstract and concrete in numeral reasoning, language development, word knowledge, verbal communication, spatial visualization. He tested to having a 72 IQ. He also had a strong history of violence and a predisposition to violence, coming from a family with a history of child abuse as well as substance abuse.
2: Now, actually the timeline fits there for the early 90s for that happening with him being bumped up to ninth grade despite not having the the rest of it the, the 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 intellect in that because in the early 90s was when the ADA became in place in the states and a big push was made for integration of kids mm-hmm. you make sure they go into the grade for their age um so that makes sense that they would have bumped him up then
1: yeah cuz you don't want a 16 year old sitting amongst like 10 year olds
2: exactly and i guess the other thing is they probably didn't have a local school that was equipped for handling these special education students yeah and not in west memphis when no. the population is so small no they wouldn't have had the resources for dealing with that, so they'd just bump them up.
1: Um, all right, so I said the substance abuse. Jesse admitted that he had huffed gasoline for two years in his early teens and used alcohol and marijuana. Marijuana's not gonna do fuck all, so don't worry about that one. Um, he dropped out of school and began working alongside his father, who worked as a mechanic. Despite his temper, he was known to be very gentle with children and off to babysat for his neighbors, including Vicki Hutchinson. Uh, Jesse loved pro wrestling and wanted to be a pro wrestler, even though he was short and kind of scrawny. Uh, Miss Kelly was put on probation after stealing some flags from the high school band that he saw laying on the ground. He took them to add to his homemade racetrack. The reason he did that, because he thought they were just left there for no reason. Like, they were abandoned. Yeah. There was nothing nefarious about that.
2: And he he probably didn't have the reasoning capabilities, judging from what was said about him Mm -hmm. and that. Probably didn't have the reasoning capabilities to deal no. with what to do with So, situation. yeah, obviously,
1: he was put on Driver and Jones's radar at that point. Jesse Sr. said that his son often stayed away from Damien Eccles because he was afraid of him. The only time he was ever with Damien was the rare occasions that he was with Jason, and Jason was always with uh, Damien and Dominique. There's too many D's, it throws me off. Yeah. And on the night of May 5th, his friend said Jesse was at a wrestling matches in Dias, Arkansas. Which, there's very little about that alibi, so... I'm just leaving it at Actually,
2: that. I did see they actually were able to produce pictures and a... Yeah, they did in the a trial, log. right? Yes. But they it produced, didn't matter. There were pictures of him at the match plus a registration log from the match where people signed in with his name in it in his writing. Yeah. So it was like, what? Anyway.
1: So let's dive into the confession. <laughs> this
0: is still part one.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes, this is still part one. This is a long one, people. <laughs> this, is, this is a lot to take in. Okay, guys. As I had mentioned, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. had an IQ of 72 and had the reasoning level of a, grade, of a 6 to 8-year-old and read at a grade 3 level. Jesse was really good at masking his disability and would agree with others to cope. This makes him highly suggestible. When he was brought into the West Memphis police for an interview on June 3rd, there was no way that Jesse could truly comprehend what was happening. He was under the understanding that the police just wanted to talk to him. They used the enticing reward money to make him more comfortable. Jesse really wanted that money so he could buy his dad a new truck. That just tells you how innocent he is, right? Very,
2: very innocent, very childlike. Yes.
1: Detective Brian Ridge and Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell interviewed Jesse for four hours between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. without recording the interview. Jesse denies knowing anything as well as denying he was involved. <clears throat> he told Detective Ringe that he had heard around town that Damien Eccles and Robert Birch might have committed the crimes. At the same time, Miss Kelly denies having any involvement in satanic activity and said he wasn't even aware it was in the area. Jesse told them on May 6th on his way to a job in Memphis that he heard three boys were missing. Just after 11 a.m., Jesse is read his rights, which should have been done before they began interviewing him, and they should have recorded it as well. They drive Jesse to his dad's for police to obtain permission to allow for his son to take a polygraph since Jesse was a minor. Granted, I'm thinking his father's not the brightest bulb in the bunch yeah. either because I'm sorry, I'm not going to just give my kid permission to take a polygraph and not go with them. Yeah, you know. But I mean, background history, all
2: that. Yeah, the father that... might not have thought anything. Oh yeah, sure, sure, please go for, do yeah. it, have fun. Yeah.
1: So Detective Bill Durham, and this this is nasty. This is nasty trick tells Jesse that the polygraph machine can read minds.
2: Oh, bugger.
1: <laughs> why Why would you do that? Like, because you can. Well, you can lie, but why would you do that to somebody who's clearly got a mental handicap?
2: The other thing is... They You're mu- fucking with him. If he was good enough at hiding it, I have known people who it took me a while to realize just exactly what they were masking.
1: I don't think he was hiding it that well because yeah. if you go into the... The more we go into this yeah the more you realize that these guys knew that they were what they were dealing yeah.
2: with. jesse is pretty obvious from what i can see but i know some are good at hiding it the other thing is is, is that the police was just thinking
1: i'm gonna do whatever i can yeah well anyways it must have worked because when the test is over detective Durham tells the other detectives quote he's lying his ass off unquote at two forty four p.m jesse sits back down with ridge and gitchell and they begin to uh, begin an audio recording only no video just audio they show him pictures of the three deceased boys, and Jesse does not know who is who. And they show him autopsy photos because the photos are done, but the autopsy report is not in yet. Um, Gitchell then draws two circles and asks if Jesse is going to be in the circle with them, the good guys, or the other circle with the bad guys. Ooh. That shows that they are clearly aware yeah. of Jesse's lack of intelligence. Yeah, yeah. That one really shows they how simplified
2: much, it. Yeah, they really did. And they used a visual representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> they, they, they were aware.
1: And they, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was during this first recorded interview that is more that is it more than evident that both Ridge and Gitchell are leading Jesse, guiding him to say what they wanted him to mm-hmm. say, even getting frustrated with Jesse at certain points when he didn't say what they wanted him to. There's no way that we can go through the entire confession, but I'll read parts where it's clear that they are leading him. And I kind of. Did kind of overdo it a little bit, I will admit that. So, Jesse begins saying that Jason Baldwin called him on May 5th to go with him and Damien. But Jesse says no because he had to work. Jesse ends up going with them. Ridge asks, at 9 o'clock in the morning? Jesse, yes, I did. Then they establish that they walked there. Ridge asks to explain where Robin Hood Hills was and Jesse says by the Blue Beacon truck wash. Did Jesse even know the boys were found there? Ridge, quote, what occurred while you were there? Unquote. Jesse. Well, when I was there I saw Damien hit this one hit this one boy real bad and then uh and then he started screwing them and stuff and then uh Ridge interrupts him and takes out a newspaper article with all three boys' pictures and asks which boy did Damien hit? And Jesse says Michael Moore. And Gitchell points and says, This boy right here? Jesse says, Yeah, and Gitchell says, That's the buyer's boy. Gitchell asks if that's who he was pointing at, and Jesse said, Mm hmm. And they do look very different. They're very different. Yeah, all boys. three
2: boys looked very different from each other. Yeah. yeah.
1: Rich asks, so you saw Damien strike Chris Byers in the head. That's a leading. Mm-hmm. He's right, leading right there. He's asking where Chris was struck and Jesse volunteered the head. Because if Jesse had volunteered the head without being told, it wouldn't be leading. But he gave Jesse the answer.
2: We also don't have a visual representation. Could have been that. I mean, I'm we don't know. The police officers could have been... been tapping their heads. Who knows? Yeah, exactly,
1: right? We don't know. We have no idea. Oh, and to make it even more clear, they still do not have the completed autopsy reports at this point. Uh, Jesse tells him that Jason hit Steve Branch and started doing the same thing. Said Michael Moore took off and that he chased him through, chased him and brought him back and held him, held onto him until the other two got to him, and then says he left. Ridge. All right. okay, all right. When you get the boys back together, where are you at from the creek? Now Ridge is giving Jesse a more precise location as to where the crime occurred, and shortly after Ridge asks if there were if they were in the woods and also if Jesse is on the side of the bayou or out in the field, which is suggestive. Mm-hmm. Ridge, can you describe to me what in those woods what's the location where you were? Jesse, uh Ridge, is there a path that you go down? Jesse, uh, down a little path. Jesse has no clue. And so Ridge says the word path, which Jesse says again. Yeah. Jesse basically and unintentionally puts himself in the middle by saying he chased down Michael and held on to him, not understanding that now he's part of these murders, despite saying he leaves right after. Then Ridge says to him, when you come back a little later, all three boys are tied. Jesse says, "Mm mm-hmm. And then I took off and went home. So, summarize, Ridge suggests a knife was present. He also suggests a knife was used to cut one of the boys. Gitchell asks if the boy was cut on the bottom and points to the groin area. Ridge asks if Jesse knows what a penis is. Jesse keeps adding what they want and tries to remove himself by saying that he took off. Jesse's asked what time this all went down at, and he says noon. Ridge doesn't want that answer, so he suggests by asking if it was after school. Jesse sticks with noon and says the boys skipped school. Jesse says he got to Robin Hood Hills at nine in the morning, now saying he met them there before he said he went with them. So he's already confused. Jesse. Uh, Ridge asked Jesse, what time is it now? Jesse didn't know. Ridge asked if he wore a wristwatch. He said it was at home. Ridge then suggests that Jesse's time period might not be exactly right. Jesse responds with, right. So Ridge then asks, it was like earlier in the day, but you don't know exactly what time, okay? Because we've got, I've gotten some real confusion with the times that you're telling me. But now this nine o'clock in the evening call that you got, explain that to me. I read that the way it sounded. Yeah. Just so you know. Yeah. Ridge pretty much gave stuff away right there because Jesse said nine in the morning, not at night. Uh-huh. So Ridge feeds him the later time in that statement. Jesse says they called him at nine and he had went home at noon and when they called they said they had done it and asked why he left so early to which he said he couldn't watch anymore when asked who called him he answered Jason did but said Damien was in the was with him because he could hear him in the background Ridge brings back to the knives and then suggests Jesse's knife was used Jesse said uh-uh and that he was one knife he has one knife at home and said he didn't know what Jason had done with it because he left Again, he's removing himself. Yep. Gitchell then tells him that he doesn't believe Jesse's being truthful and says Jesse was there the whole time. Jesse says he left after they tied the boys up and then he left. He said the boys were cut up before they were tied up, unconscious, and Jason was screwing one and Damien was screwing the screwing them up the ass. When asked about the penis being cut off and if anyone was having sex with him, Jesse said no as a question. Like, No. No. Jesse, they beat them up so bad where they can't hardly move. They had their hands tied down and he sit on them. Rich, you said that they had their hands tied up, tied down. Were their hands tied in a fashion that they couldn't have run? You tell me. So we already know the boys were tied hand to foot. Yeah,
2: Yeah. and so saying hands tied down so they couldn't sit on them, that makes no sense with the hog tie. Right. Yeah.
1: Jesse says, they could run, they just had them tied. When they knocked them down and stuff, they could move their arms and stuff and hold them down like where they couldn't raise up and the other one stick his legs up. They're trying to get Jesse to say their legs were also tied. At another pivotal aspect of this confession, Gitchell asks if anyone used a stick. and Then Jesse inserts the previously non-existent stick into his story. Then both Ridge and Gitchell ask him to describe the sizes of both of the sticks and knife as well as asks about a briefcase that they allege Damien carried. But Jesse said he never saw a briefcase, but Gitchell is persistent, so Jesse says, yeah, that Damien had cocaine and a little gun and pictures of the boys. Okay. Jesse also stated that the boys were tied up with rope and never says with shoelaces.
2: Yeah, there's a big difference.
1: It definitely is a big difference.
2: And he would have known that.
1: Yeah. They talked to Jesse about the cult, which Jesse said he joined three months ago and gives all sorts of weird details about it. Detective Ridge asked Jesse about them all being in the water, and his response was, they was just playing around, but the little boys didn't go in. Jesse was asked if... I can't read my own writing. <laughs> if they had hit or raped or killed any of the boys, to which he answered no to all. Oh, if he had, sorry. He, had, he then led by Ridge to say he saw Chris Byers get killed and that he was choked. When asked how Jesse said... When asked how, Jesse said with hands and added, like a stick. And since this was never video recorded, we have no real way to know if they were physically prompting Jesse. They also managed to get him to say that the phone call from Jason at 9 p.m. took place an hour after Jesse left the scene, which placed him there at 8 p.m. Earlier, Jesse kept saying he left around noon, or 3 or 4. They slowly guided him to, to where they wanted him, at the scene at their estimated time of the murders. The interview ends at 8, at 3.18 p.m. and picks back up again not long after and ends again. Whatever was said in between, we will never know. Jesse is not released. He is now arrested. And he would
2: have thought, well, okay, I've given them what they want, and I wasn't there. I didn't do anything. Like, like I didn't kill the boys, so why would they want me? Is His reasoning on that, because he made sure that he said he didn't do it. He just was there.
1: It's a bullshit. It's a bullshit confession. Absolutely. And I'm going to put the audio um, clip of it from YouTube into the WordPress and I might even just actually post it directly on the Mystery Map uh, fan club page on Facebook because the whole audio is there.
0: Like I've heard of cops screwing up but but not like deliberately pretty much writing their own story about whatever they think yeah whoever did what right like that's just just and we'll have
1: more on the false confessions in the trial because um dan stidham brings in um experts in that field so now we got jesse's arrested so for jason baldwin the evening of june 3rd was a special evening He had just finished high school not high school but that school year sorry he'd been he'd be starting a new job on monday at the grocery store his mother told him to be with his friends that friday night and got someone else to look after his brothers Pam and Joe were going out to a casino and rented a TV and VCR and the movie Leprechaun for their son Damien, their daughter Michelle, Jason, and Dominique, who was pregnant with Damien's baby at the time. They were all having a fun night until the police showed up, but Damien and Jason were arrested for the murders of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore. Jason later said, quote, one minute I was free, and then the next I wasn't, unquote. Damien and Jason both denied they had anything to do with the murders. Jason was the youngest at 16 years old. He was not given a phone call and did not have an adult there to advocate for him, and his mother was never informed of his arrest until much later. Jason told them exactly where he was and who he was with and what they were doing on May 5th, but the police didn't care. Damien was also denied his right to a phone call. They were also not given attorneys, and I believe Damien asked multiple times for one. Jason and Damien handled their interrogations much better than Jesse had. Jesse later admitted that if he'd just agreed, then they would let him go. That's what he believed. If he just said what they wanted to do, they would just let him go.
2: I guess the question on that is, what did they offer? And we, because we don't have the full transcripts or notes from, from all the hours of his interview. We have no idea what they promised him. Hey, you just tell us this. We'll let you go. Or don't worry. Like, we don't know what they promised him. We'll
1: get you the reward money. Yeah. Yeah. We have no idea. At this point, it was reward money. Yeah. Yeah. So the, Arrests basically happened on Jesse Miss Kelly's confession. And Judge Rainey signed the arrest and search warrants. Police collected a bunch of black t-shirts, fiber samples from a bathrobe belonging to Jason's mother in Damien's notebooks. All three were charged with three counts of capital murder. Jason and Damien's questioning were not recorded. On June 4th, Inspector Gary Gitchell held a press conference where he stated that on a scale of 1 to 10, he was an 11 in his confidence that he had the right teenagers in custody.
2: Oh, that one is is the weirdest thing to watch. Matt's
1: shaking his head right now.
2: It's, it's <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that you have the right people? 11. 11. He was a dick. Now, he has since said that... That, was, wishes- a stupid, that yeah. was a
1: stupid yeah. thing to say. Yeah, he has since he said that. He still backs the arrest, but yeah. he says that that was a stupid thing to say. Yeah, yeah. So, some evidence was collected after the arrest. So, the prosecution had the homes of Damien and Jason searched, looking for any evidence to help solidify their case against the two teens. About 600 pieces of evidence was collected, including 100 pieces of clothing, 87 hair samples, numerous fingerprints, blood and urine samples, 17 knives, three sticks, three hammers, three robes, two razors, an ice axe, candle, hook, a mask, and a pre- and previously a mason jar of water from the crime scene, which was asked by Dr. Frank Bready, the examiner. And a pear tree. And a pear tree. tree. Yeah, I was going to add that too. (laughs) On July 4th, Detective Brian Ridge went back to the scene in Robin Hood Hills to collect some sticks that were similar to the ones used to anchor the clothing and victims to the creek bed. July 4th. Two months.
2: And not even the exact sticks, but similar ones. Similar ones. That you would have no idea if they actually are or not. They
1: should have collected those sticks right then and there. Oh, hell yeah. Yes, so the actual sticks should have been collected on May 6th, but were never not. Uh, he picks up three or four random sticks. So I like this quote. This is by John Douglas. Quote, the difference between evidence and garbage is the chain of custody, unquote.
2: <laughs> that's a good one. I love that quote. That's that's so true. I love
1: John so Douglas. So true. John Douglas is my hero. Yeah. I know, because I mentioned him in every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any forensic evidence collected were fibers that came from the homes and belongings of the three accused, but none of the fibers matched conclusively to any retrieved from the scene. They were only microscopically similar. On November 17th, District Attorney John Fogelman sent some divers to search the small lake behind Jason Baldwin's trailer. The police divers, with the media present, which Fogelman called about the search, entered the water. In less than an hour, a diver comes up holding a knife with a serrated blade. It was 35 minutes. 35 minutes? Yeah. 35 minutes. I'm glad minutes. you remember that detail. I and, and the press was
2: ready to snap a picture right yeah, then. They'd he... been told, just watch.
1: Yeah. So the diver later, much or diver much later admitted that he was given a description of the knife as well as the location. Vogelman knew where to find this knife. This wasn't a major problem, except the person who told him about it was never called at trial. Instead, he said he just had a hunch. The informant was Gail Grinnell, Jason's mother, who told Vogelman Jason had a knife, but she threw it in the lake a year before the murders. Therefore, not the murder weapon. Didn't seem to fucking matter, did it? Nope.
2: Something he could use.
1: Yep. So none of the fibers directly matched anything from Jason or Damien, but many of the fibers were more consistent with fibers collected from the Moore's residents. Most of, if not all, the clothes came from the local Walmart, where the entire town shopped. There was no DNA found on the bodies or at the crime scene that connected Eccles, Baldwin, or Miss Kelly. A month before the first trial was set to begin, Mark Byers gave the HBO Paradise Lost production crew a knife. Upon closer look by one of the film crew, noticed what looked like blood on it, so they sent it back to the West Memphis police. Another piece of the evidentiary puzzle is, of course, the autopsies. And this is going to be tough, so if you guys want to skip it, if Matt remembers, we'll put a time stamp in there. What time is it at, Matt? So the autopsy reports on Chris, Stevie, and Michael were completed after the arrest of Damien, Jason, and Jesse. Usually the police have some pieces of the autopsy before the rest, called a preliminary, but not in this case. Let's start with Stevie. Stevie Branch's right hand was hog-tied to his right ankle with a black shoelace. His left hand was hog-tied to his left ankle with a white shoelace. His right ear had multiple contusions and abrasions, as well as scattered abrasions over his right eye with a half-inch contusion over his right eyelid and brow. There was also a two-inch scratch under Stevie's right eye. Multiple scratches were found on the right jaw area. Bell-shaped abrasions were found on the right jaw and one above and below his left eyebrow.
2: Sorry, what did you say? Bell-shaped? Bow Bell. Bell. Bell-shaped. Bell-shaped, okay.
1: Which will make sense later. Yeah. Um, his left ear was contused with overlying fine linear abrasions. The entire left side of Stevie's face showed multiple confluent red abrasions with multiple gouging type irregular cutting wounds with overlying abrasions with many wounds inside of the mouth, which was indicative of bleeding at some point, as well as the gums. The head and skull showed multiple abrasions, fractures, and subpar hemorrhage. Did I say that right? I
2: had to see what you're
1: writing. Well, sub, subarachnoid?
2: Yeah, subarachnoid.
1: Yeah. Hemorrhage was, I was getting tired at that point, was present in his right frontal lobe. There were multiple scattered abrasions on his chest and multiple scratches and contusions on his lower limbs, including a one inch yellow scratch on his thigh and a grid like pattern impression with evidence of binding abrasions and contusions that were yellow and tanned with the braided margins. The mid-shaft of Stevie's penis, including the glands, were red and purple with fine superficial scratches. The cause of death was due to multiple injuries and drowning as water was found in his lungs and stomach. Defensive wounds were also present. Michael Moore's autopsy report was similar to Stevie Branch's with the exception of Michael had been viciously beaten and had defensive wounds. There were multiple contusions, abrasions, fractions throughout his face, head, and body. Michael's cause of death was also due to multiple injuries and drowning. Uh, Christopher Byers' autopsy revealed that Chris received the worst of it. Unlike Stevie and Michael, Chris had no defensive wounds. Christopher had been severely beaten. Multiple bite wounds were found inside his mouth. Multiple fractures at the base of his skull, including a a three-and-a-half-inch radiating fracture on the left cranial as well as a left posterior medial cranial quarter of an inch punched-out fracture. The side of his penis, scrotal, sac, and testicles were missing, with gaping defect of two and three quarters by one and a half inch shaft of penis, present gaping defects surrounded by multiple and extensive irregular punctuating gouging-type injuries. Also present were scars from past injuries, whereas both Stevie and Michael had binding contusions around their wrists and ankles, Christopher only had faint contusions on his left wrist and left left ankle, and were not accompanied by any other contusions to the surrounding area, leading to the speculation they were tied post mortem. Cause of death for Christopher Byers was not drowning, but blood loss from multiple injuries.
2: Now, just a question, wasn't Christopher Bryars the one who had uh some issues with ADD and so that would almost make sense that he sustained worse injuries because of the three boys. I bet that he might have been He beaked who... off. Yeah. Yeah, so he might have really pissed off whoever did it. It's
1: Yeah, later Mark Byers says the same thing. He says chances are he would probably have spoken up and said, you're not my dad, I don't have to listen to you, and probably pissed off the yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. And that's why he got the worst of it. Yeah. But he's an eight-year-old boy. Oh,
2: my God. Absolutely. That's just, like, even just listening to you say that, it's like, I wish I could skip forward. Yeah. Uh,
1: and I've seen the pictures, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you watched Paradise Lost? Um, any warned. of them? Be warned, you will see autopo- autopsy photos and photos of their bodies on the riverbanks. Yeah, yeah. It's shocking. It is shocking. Yeah. And I've seen things, but that was probably the that's that was actually probably the second worst thing I've ever seen. Worst? John Bonnet's yeah. autopsy photos yeah. that I found accidentally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So with the tough subject of the boys' autopsies out of the way, we can move forward with the trials.
2: Okay, just give me a second. We're at one nineteen twenty. People want to skip to one
1: nineteen twenty. Okay. So, with the tough topic of the boys' autopsies out of the way, we can move forward with the trials. Before the trials happened, Jesse Miss Kelly's June 3rd confession was leaked to the media, further tainting the public opinion regarding the three arrested teens. Having something like this publicly made potentially taints potential jury pools, hence negating the right to a fair trial. Oh, and I love this guy. I love this guy. Public defender Dan Stidham was assigned to Jesse's case. Oh. Stidham assumed that Jesse was guilty. Like everyone else, uh, Stidham thought, why would an innocent person confess? Mm -hmm. He assumed his client would enter a guilty plea, and it was his job to try and work out the best possible deal for Jesse and prepare him to testify against the other two. He quickly came to realize that Jesse did not understand that Dan was there for his best interest and to protect him. Jesse didn't truly understand what a lawyer was. This made Dan Stidham take a closer look at things. So he listened very intently to the taped confession and realized that the confession wasn't Jesse's but more so Detective Ridges and Inspector Gitchell leading his client. There was no way Stidham could allow his client to go down for a murder he had nothing to do with. Stidham was heading for battle.
2: And false confessions were still not known much about at that time. That no. That was still very early phase. Yeah. Um, it's not like now where more is known, but back then it really wasn't a thing that people thought of.
1: Yeah. It was decided that the trials would be separated into two. Jesse Miss Kelly's first, and then Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin together. Jason Baldwin's public defender, Paul Ford, tried to get his client's trial separated from Damien's, but was denied, citing extravagant court costs. In my opinion, as well as many others, that denial was because there was no evidence connecting uh, connecting Jason to the murders. Mm -hmm. Other than Jesse's confession, no no other witnesses placed Jason with Damien's sightings. Jesse's trial was set to go first with Judge David Burnett. Set to preside over both. He's a dick. He's a Ugh. dick and I hate him. I'm sitting here growling all oh, his a name. Dick. Oh. oh, and he's creepy fucking oh. ginger too. <laughs> Sorry.
2: <laughs> How did I know the ginger part was going to come he's off? He's just that creepy guy. Like, yeah, he is. Absolutely.
1: He looks like he touches babies. Mm. that's a statement i said he looks like it i didn't say he actually did um just an ass (laughs) we might want to edit that out yeah Yeah. on january 19th 1994 opening statements began dan stidham told the jury that police used jesse's low iq against him and that the confession jesse miss kelly gave was not only false but factually wrong and pointed out the inconsistencies Stidham also informed the jury that on the day of may 5th 1993 His client was 40 miles away on a roofing job, leaving at 4 p.m. and not getting home until around 6. During cross-examination of Detective Brian Ridge, Stidham asked if they found any evidence of cult-like paraphernalia, such as candles or carvings of 666, to which Richard admitted they did not, and that he was not an expert. When asked about Jesse's saying the murders happened at noon, Ridge replies, They went over it.
2: They went over it.
1: That's very subjective.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, we went over it. We what went over it. Hell? Yeah,
1: no shit you did. Yeah. Um. Stidham calls the detective out about stopping the tape recording and starting it back up again. Ridge said he could not remember. Ridge also admitted on the stand that the photos of the boy's bodies were shown to Jesse in order to scare him, and that it never occurred to him that Jesse had a mental handicap. Yet when you hear the confession, you can hear them talk down to Jesse like he's an idiot. Yeah. So Jesse's confession is then played in court and Stidham asked Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell, how does he know what Jesse told him about noon was incorrect? And Gitchell responded with, because the boys were in school. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. When asked how does he know that Jesse was telling him, what Jesse was telling him was incorrect, Gitchell answered that he feels that like Jesse told them a good bit of the truth. Stidham, quote, is it common for police to ignore these obvious problems and assume that everything else is true? Unquote. Gitchell. Quote, Jesse simply got confused, unquote. <laughs> confused?
2: Confused.
1: What else may have Jesse gotten confused about? That statement alone would have given me doubt. There's no way I would have convicted Jesse after hearing that if I was on the jury.
2: No. And, and I mean confused. I'm sorry. When you have a statement of, of guilt, you need to make sure that the person who's stating it is not confused.
1: Yes. Medical examiner Dr. Frank Peretti testified mm. that he could not say what exactly caused the marks on the con- mar- marks in the castration found on the body of Christopher Byers. Prosecutor John Fogelman got Peretti to say that the knife, which had been found in the lake behind Jason Baldwin's trailer, could have been the weapon used. Peretti said there was limitations to what his examination could reveal. Due to the length of time the bodies sat on the riverbank exposed to the warm air after their discovery, and it's because of this that the time of death could not be estimated. Please remember that. I just said that.
2: Time of death could not be estimated. Well, Paredes had his own issues.
1: Yes, he did. He was a little meek man. Sedham asked if the boys had been choked, like Jesse told the police. Paredes said no. He also told the court that there was no evidence that the boys were sodomized, like Jesse said. Peretti said if the boys were sodomized that he would expect to see injuries to the boys' anuses, like bruising and abrasions, but there were no signs. Warren Holmes, a former detective with Miami Dade for 13 years as well as as le- who led seminars for 10 for various law enforcement agencies including FBI and CIA on the interrogation, was brought in by Stenham as an expert witness. Holmes testified that he has interrogated over 1200 murder suspects and had his fair share of false confessions. He testified that the suspects should be able to tell the police something they don't know, doesn't conflict with the evidence or manner of death. They should be the ones talking telling law enforcement what happened, leading the interview, not the police. Mm -hmm. Once the suspect is done, then ask questions and question their story. If you are the one who is wrong, they will tell you. Look for incidental details, descriptions of their behaviors, and the behavior of the victim at the time. They should describe their feelings, conversations with the victims, and watch if their words match the emotion you see see, as they may be reliving the crime. Have them do a walkthrough of the crime scene where you'll be able to tell if the suspect is reliving or fantasizing about it. Holmes explained that personality traits of people who falsely confess have low IQs, are highly suggestible, always attempting to solve the immediate stress factor, naively assuming they can sort it out later because they just want everything to end and be left alone.
2: Well, and Jesse did state he can't stand when people ask him the same question more than once. Yes. He, he stated that one. I remember that. And yeah. So it would just throw him off so much. Yeah, it
1: would. He'd be like the prime suspect for anything yeah. at this point. Another expert witness brought in by Stenham was Dr. Richard Offshee, a renowned Berkeley professor and prominent expert on false confessions. Judge Burnett only allowed a small part of Offshee's testimony, citing that allowing an expert to tell the jury what was true and what was false was taking the finding of fact responsibility away from the jury.
2: Oh.
1: Uh, now you know why I made oh, that comment earlier.
2: Oh, I had I mentioned something to Sarah earlier about just something that Burnett That's said, coming which up. I, I thought was okay, but now, that is like, now, holy yeah. crap. I, I missed that one. Okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, Well, my that's Lord. because that
1: wasn't, that in, wasn't in the books. Doc- was in the okay, books. Yeah.
2: I only watched things. I didn't read stuff. She did.
1: Yeah. So this is a practice that Burnett would make common in regards to the defense experts and witnesses in both trials. A lot of the testimony was done in Burnett's chambers away from the jury. Before the trial, Dr. Offshe spent three hours with Jesse. Offshe testified that when Miss Kelly said noon, Ridge then asked if it was after school, suggesting to Jesse when, and then saying, that night, you were in the woods. Jesse agrees, but, but before he never mentioned night or any references to night. After that, that's what he used. On February 3rd in the closing arguments, Dan Stidham reminded the jury that Jesse never told the police anything new or what wasn't already publicized. He reminded them that Ridge and Gitchell led Jesse through his entire tape statement, and no one knows what happened before they began recording. When Brent Davis, the guy who did not charge the police in the state investigation of the task force, he's also on the prosecution team,
2: okay, all right,
1: yep, yep, gave the closing arguments for the state, berating the defense's expert witnesses, he says that Dr. Off she used smoke and mirrors to make it sound like the confession Jesse Miss Kelly gave was coerced. Calls it junk science. Ugh. On February fourth, after nine hours of deliberation over a period of two days, the jury returned with their verdict. Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr. was found guilty on one count of capital first-degree murder, murder of Michael Moore, and two counts of second-degree murder of Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers. He was then sentenced to life without parole plus two consecutive twenty-year terms. Jesse Miss Kelly was convicted on a coerced confession, no physical evidence, and no connection to the three boys. But the prosecution team had to regroup and begin their pr- preparation for Eccles and Baldwin's upcoming trial. They desperately needed Jesse and Ms. Kelly to testify against Damien and Jason. If Jesse refuses, they cannot use the confession or even make reference to it. John Fogelman and Brent Davis talked to the parents of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher and explain that they need Jesse's testimony real bad. They have some fiber evidence, Narlene Hollingworth's testimony, some young girls' jailhouse informant, and a knife. With their blessing, the prosecutors offered Jesse a lesser sentence as well as conjugal visits with his girlfriend.
2: <laughs> 17-year-old boy
1: he, he getting was, free sex?
2: Yeah, okay. Well, and I mean, his phone calls to his girlfriend were all about, they love them Yes, they were. Yes.
1: Um, And reward money if he would testify. Jesse refused a deal and chooses not to testify. So this totally fucks Fogelman and Davis. So Fogelman and Davis let the families know but plan on speaking with Jason Baldwin to give him a deal if he would testify against Damien. Jason refuses both offers from the prosecution without hesitation. Yep. Still thinking that Jesse, Miss Kelly might change his mind, they keep up the appearance with the media that Miss Kelly was planning on testifying.
2: What's our time at? One hour and a half. Okay,
1: let's go part two next. Okay, you're all done? Yep. So we'll be back with part two.
0: Yeah, stay tuned guys. We will see you next week.